The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Charles Dickens called it, quote, the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. Thomas Paine complained that it was a story, quote, most wretchedly told, and argued that anyone who could tell a story about a ghost or even just of a man walking around could have done a better job. We're looking at the New Testament today on the History of Literature. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to episode 41 of the History of Literature. Today we're going to be taking a deep look at the New Testament, the 27 books that were combined in the early years of the church to form what's now known as the canon. From the Gospels of Jesus Christ to the letters of Paul and the book of Revelations, the text has been at the heart of Christianity, its view of life, its instruction for worship, its conveyance of the meaning of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ and the religion that bears his name. Very few works have had the powerful impact that this book has had, and its importance continues today, both for Christians and non-Christians alike. But what are the work's literary qualities? What can we gain from studying the New Testament as a literary work? I'll be joined today by New Testament scholar Kyle Kiefer, Associate Professor of Religion at Converse College. He's also the author of the book, The New Testament as Literature, in Oxford University Press's Very Short Introduction series. It's a wonderful book, and it's highly recommended. That's all coming up in a moment. But first, I wanted to thank last week's guest, Rada Vatsal, who joined us to talk about women journalists in the early 20th century. Her book, A Front Page Affair, starring Kitty Weeks, is now available for sale at bookstores everywhere. For a while, Amazon.com ran out of copies. I don't know how much of that was due to the Jack Wilson bump, but hey, however it happened, I'm happy the book is doing so well. You can listen to that interview by subscribing to the podcast or by downloading the episode from iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting our websites, historyofliterature.com or my own personal website, jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. One quick technical note before we begin. There are a few audio glitches in my recording of my conversation with Professor Kiefer. It comes in the discussion of John about halfway through. They don't last long. I fixed what I could, but the rest I had to leave in. My apologies. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Kyle Kiefer. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Kyle Kiefer is an assistant professor of religion at Converse College in South Carolina. He's also the author of the excellent book, The New Testament as Literature, which is part of Oxford University Press's Very Short Introduction series. Professor Kiefer, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I was wondering if we could start with the story of your own religious history, and in particular, uh, when you, if you could tell our listeners when you developed your academic interest in religion. Sure. So I grew up in the Houston area in Texas, in, mm-hmm. a, in a Southern Baptist setting, and so I grew up in a fairly conservative Christian setting in which religion and Christianity were always central to my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went away to college, I had a couple of courses in one, two courses, one in New Testament, one in Old Testament, and it was a way of, of approaching these texts that I knew very well in a in a strikingly different way. Mm-hmm. And so I I became very interested in that approach, and um, as an undergrad, I moved more and more toward thinking about, well, perhaps this is something I would want to study further. I didn't know if I would go into church work or go into academics, but then I went to I went to seminary in Princeton Theological Seminary, and at that point, uh, somewhere in those three years, decided. I'd really like to stay in academia, so then I went and did a Ph.D. at Emory University mm-hmm. in New Testament and early Christianity, and so then I've been teaching at the college level for now 15 years. Oh, interesting. So I'm interested in the point where you got to college and you first encountered these courses. Was it uh, something you were at all resistant to, or did you have any any doubts about reading uh, the New Testament as literature when you first started taking the course? Sure, and and I would say that that in those early courses that they weren't so much about reading the New Testament as literature, but they were reading the New Testament and the Old Testament through through critical eyes, which mm-hmm. was that was the new part. And yeah, I'm sure that I had some resistance. Um, you grow up with a certain amount of well certainty about right. what these texts mean, and then those questions are raised and. It, it does throw one off. I think I I was lucky enough to go through it and and have professors that were good enough that uh, it was a gradual process. And um, and clearly, as I've I've gotten older and and more well, far much farther away from the religious background that I grew up in. Um, that yeah, that at times there are these kind of existential crises. Uh, that mm-hmm. might be a little bit uh, overstated, but um, 
you work through them, and at least for me, I, I've come out on the other side where I still am um, happy to have gone, to have been raised in a Christian tradition, but I'm also distanced enough from it that I, I I don't have any of those constraints, of course, that I grew up with. Right, and I'm guessing when you have uh, uh, classrooms full of students, you probably have a whole range of students who are bringing a lot of different perspectives and, and their own um, approaches to your course. That's something you probably need to be very sensitive to and alert to as you as you teach them the subject. Yes, we do. It's becoming perhaps a little bit less so. I think as the as a newer generation of students come in, there um, there are fewer and fewer that come from dogmatic backgrounds. But one of the things that I'll sometimes say to my classes when we're doing biblical studies is, for those of you for whom these texts are important and central to your life, and for those of you who have an antagonistic attitude toward these texts who um, don't value them in any personal way, uh, I, I say to my class, I'm, I'm aiming to help both ends of the spectrum perhaps see that they don't know the texts as well as they think they do, right. so, that we can, so I can get them both to kind of uh, look at them with new eyes. Right. Right. That's uh, that seems like really good advice. And I was struck by in your book, um, I think there was a passage where you talked about, you know, it, it's it's very simple, but I just hadn't really thought of it in this way of of thinking of, well, um, plenty of people, uh, you know, who are from a Jewish background or from a Buddhist background or something are reading the New Testament just to understand the religion of someone else better or to understand a culture better or something like that. And when you think of it that way, I mean, the books do exist. They exist outside of the realm of, of just faith and, and Sunday school and, and church, but they're, they're there as literature, whether, uh, you know, true believers want to see them that way or not. Correct. And I, and I think that, um, that, Thinking of them as literature allows them to be talked about without the, the burden of having to address all of the theological minutia that might come up within the church setting, for instance. Right, right. Okay, well, one of the things that you encourage us to do, and this might help move us along a little bit, is to, uh, you encourage us to consider Kenneth Burke's essay, Literature as Equipment for Living, as a path toward understanding uh, what it means to take a literary approach to the New Testament. And I'm I'm curious, what does Burke say about literature, and, and what does he mean by equipment for living? Well, Burke was kind of a quirky critic. He he wasn't part of any particular school. Um, he was very interested in the concept of rhetoric. And for him, I think the, the notion of rhetoric was was trying to get at the dynamic relationship between reader and text. And so he was really interested in the effects that, that literature would have and how it would how it connected to um, everyday life. And mm-hmm. So it's not as if he was anti-aesthetic, but he was, I think, reacting against an over, um, a strong fixation on just the aesthetics of a particular piece of literature. And so he talks in, the, in, in a number of his books, but in this essay that I quote, about the way in which people use literature, that 
that literature exists because it um, it feels niche in people's lives, and that and then it becomes something that they they refer back to either mentally, sometimes um, explicitly, to to help interact and even make sense of things that are happening in their own lives. He uses the example of um, Madame Bovary, for instance, of, mm-hmm. of naming a situation and, and kind of a life experience that that may not have been able to be named in any better way. Right, right. And it, it uh, and you, you point out a lot of different allusions and references to authors, and you make the good point that it's it's really hard to understand. Um, I'm sorry, I said authors. I meant the Bible. Um, yeah. In other authors, and and you make the point that it it would be hard to kind of understand the literature of Western culture without understanding uh, just the the basic stories and narratives of the Bible. But you also point out that it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? That a lot of the authors are not just uh, making references and allusions to different passages in the Bible, but they're really engaging in it in a really close way. That's correct. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you're, you're talking about contemporary literary authors, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, one person that comes to mind is Flannery O'Connor. Ooh, yeah. So o- o- O'Connor and her short stories is, is clearly interested in, in notions of grace, of sacrifice, of of redemption mm-hmm. and and even though there she doesn't often refer to particular stories in the New Testament, she's clearly focusing or, or clearly influenced by the entirety of the story of Jesus. I mean, for instance, in in her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, right. you have the misfit going on this uh, almost a monologue about Jesus, about how Jesus throwed everything off balance and and uh if he was who he said he was and there's nothing to follow him and, and if he didn't <laughs> there's nothing but meanness in life. That's not an exact quotation, but it's pretty close. Mm-hmm. I think that's one example. You have other authors who have been more um who who have Constructed pieces of literature closer in form to the text. So, for instance, Saramago has uh, a novel called The Gospel According to Jesus Christ, where he retells the Jesus story in a way that the relationship between the Father and the Son and and Satan is is recognizable, but but appended in in dramatic and interesting ways, where Satan almost becomes heroic. And God becomes the oppressor and really the tempter. Um, right. So those are a couple of examples. I mean, you could name quite a few others. I think, for instance, uh, uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi, mm-hmm. where, he, where he takes a very short passage in, in Matthew talking about the Magi and then creates this this bittersweet poem about what their journey would have been like and what their interior thoughts would have been like both before and after encountering uh, the Christ child. Right, right. You know, Flannery O'Connor is, uh, and I I may be misquoting her on this, but I I think she said uh, somebody had, had put it to her that, that they believed in the Eucharist, but didn't believe in it literally. And they said, you know, I believe in it as a metaphor 
And her response was, well, if it's a metaphor, then to hell with it. And it seems yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. seems like uh, she would have been one of those students who would have enjoyed your class and enjoyed learning from it. <laughs> and at the end, she would have written a nice, uh, you know, evaluation of the course where you realized <laughs> that she was thinking her own thoughts all the way through. <laughs> that's right. No, <laughs> Oh, that's great. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the New Testament and the Gospels. And one of okay. the interesting things about, uh, or one of the aspects of a literary reading of anything is to talk about genre. And essentially, the Gospels are a type of biography. But um, one of the things I was interested in when I read your book is how you pointed out that biography, it, it sort of fits in that it's about the life of uh, Jesus, but it's not like a biography as we typically think of it today, where we start out with a subject's birth and childhood, or maybe even starting out with their grandparents or their parents, and then we, we walk through the chronology and we talk about the high points and, and describe the village where they grew up and and all of that. And instead, uh, the Gospels work in a, a different way, and you compare it more with biographies that were written more contemporaneously by authors in ancient Rome. And I think you, call, you use the word more uh, polemical and say that, biographies, the purpose of ancient biographies was more polemical. How does that differ from a biography as we might use it today? Yes. I, polemical might be a little strong, but polemical in the sense of wanting to put forth an example story. So mm -hmm. a, perhaps the best, the best contemporary that would serve as a parallel would be Plutarch. So Plutarch and his parallel lives of Greeks and Romans um, writes about these great figures, some of whom had been gone for hundreds of years, but some of them were roughly contemporaneous with Plutarch. And his purpose there is to is to tell the stories of these men in order to inculcate certain characteristics or to exemplify courage, bravery, other values of the Roman Empire. And I think at one point he even he even talks about um when he's in a when he's in the cities, it, it's great to be there because you get all of these stories, and um, he's clearly not interested in telling everything, mm -hmm. nor is he interested in trying to find out for sure the factual nature of of these tales of these people. Um, right. But he's he's got a, he's got a very clear purpose in mind. And so I think that's the parallel to the Gospels, is the, the Gospel writers aren't interested in, in going out and digging up all of the facts, nor are they interested in presenting a, a balanced portrait. They're trying to present a, a literary portrait of Jesus that exemplifies the characteristics that they want to say about him. So they might have, they might have known stories that they left out, uh, they certainly didn't try to verify the stories that they had in any journalistic sort of way. Mm -hmm. Right. And you you do an excellent job of, of talking about the passages in the Gospels that closely overlap. And it, it looks like uh, either they must have been copying from one another or copying from a common source. And that where since that's the case, then where they differ there must be uh, choices being made by the individual authors. And so from those different choices, we can see, we can start to see the different aims or objectives uh, that the 
individual writers have, but also just the different stylistic choices and the way the two kind of blend into one another so that a certain uh, literary choice or a style or a uh, a way of constructing it, constructing a narrative might also lead into the author's uh, purpose and their the point they're trying to get across about the life of Jesus. Is that a good That's summary? Right. Or yeah, it is, and I, I might even be uh, I might even cl- be clearer about the fact that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are clearly literary depend literarily dependent in the sense that Mark was the first written. Mm-hmm. And that Matthew and Luke both use Mark as a template for their own gospels. There's a lot of statistical evidence that that one, I mean, I could give you facts and figures, but that's that's so commonly held it, it it doesn't really need that much argumentation. So, I mean, to give one example to to pick up on what you were saying in in Mark, there's a section where. Jesus is telling a parable, is telling, telling the parable about a sower. And afterward, um, the disciples ask, what does this mean? And he says to them, um, have you not understood this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? And he says, to, uh, to you has been given the, the Greek word is mysterion, but the mystery of mm-hmm. the kingdom of, of God. Mm-hmm. Well, when Matthew tells that same story, it, it's very, very close. The, para, the, the parable that Matthew includes is almost verbatim what Mark's version is. But he makes one slight little change and then says, but to you has been given the, has been, sorry, to you has been given to know, the, the infinitive to know, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. And then at another point, Jesus will ask the disciples, have you understood all this in Matthew? And they say, yes. In Mark, every single time that Jesus had asked the disciples, do you understand? There's, it's silent. They don't say no. They don't say yes. It's the proverbial crickets in the background. Right. So that's a really good, that's a really good example of, of how Mark's narrative uh, presents the disciples as just not very bright, and they don't get it, and Jesus remains mysterious. But when Matthew writes his gospel, he highlights the disciples being um, well, good students, because right. they're going to carry on this. They're going to carry on the message, and so uh, that shows you both the literary dependence, but also picking them up on what you were saying. It shows how Matthew constructs his narrative. Um, in a way that, well, when you when you look at all the changes that he's made for Mark, you can see almost his mind turning about how he wants to construct his narrative differently. Right, and uh, there's so much there to unpack just from that one example. It's it's really it's really fascinating. So, Mark, I mean, in some ways, you could say that. I mean, I guess at the 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 most simplistic view is you could say Mark thought the disciples were dense and Matthew thought they were intelligent, but I think there's more to it than that. Mark seems like he's, he's willing to accept that uh, people who encountered the life and teachings of Jesus were left with mystery because mystery and doubt is part of uh, understanding Christianity, or if that's the right word. And Matthew almost seems like he's, he's pushing more towards a view that, 
wisdom was handed from Jesus to the disciples that could then be handed on and and almost almost like uh, seeing the lineage of the church. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it might be anachronistic to say that uh, the, the, in Mark that the disciples didn't understand Christianity. Right, right. <laughs> but, but certainly, I, I certainly would agree with the way that you put it in terms of Mark presents a Jesus that's very difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. And Mark seems, Mark seems to almost front that to the readers. It, I think there's an irony or, or maybe even a double bind in Mark where if the disciples don't understand and they're with Jesus all the time, that almost causes the reader, as she or he is going through this, to think, maybe this is a much more difficult text than it, than it seems to be at first. Right, right. But Mark seems very comfortable. Mark seems not only comfortable with with mystery, but he almost um, confronts the reader with it. And then, as you said, Matthew wants to create a much greater amount of certainty. It, precisely, as you said, in terms of passing the lineage down. And Matthew is the only gospel writer to use the word church. Mm. So, oh, right. so that's that's another uh, support for you for your your comment about how it it, it really is looking ahead to the right. lineage of the church. Right, and it's not something that you just see in the example of the disciples that you gave, but it's. It's. I mean, Mark has kind of a. a, a he's the shortest of the Gospels, and the, it's the tersest, and it's it's kind of enigmatic all throughout, right? And Matthew has a little more sharper dichotomies. I'm sorry, I missed that last part. And and Matthew is more full of certainties, or has sort of sharp dichotomies all throughout. Yeah, Matthew. Matthew wants to clean up things. Matthew gives you gives the reader. A, a long list of Jesus's sayings. So, for instance, Matthew is very quotable, mm-hmm. which is why it was the most popular gospel in the early church, because people could, um, they had a number of different sayings that they could quote, could memorize, and there was a heavy emphasis on the orality of Jesus in the early church. So, yeah, he, he just, he makes things easier for the reader compared right. to Mark. Right. Okay, and then in some ways that takes us right to Luke, who I thought um, he also seems to have a lot of sympathy for readers and making things easier for readers. He almost seems like the most modern biographer in the sense of trying hard to make a clean or or complete narrative. Is that your sense? And and if so, what gaps does he fill in that the others have left out? Yes, that is my sense. And, and, and it's encapsulated at the very beginning in his prologue, he says many have undertaken to write a narrative of Jesus, and then he says, and I, having followed all of these things from the beginning, have decided to write an orderly account <laughs> so that you may so that you may um, have surety about the things that you have been taught. That uh, that Luke is the only of the gospel writers that that gives us some hint about his own process and and could very well be talking, and almost probably is talking about Mark, that Mark doesn't have this order. So Luke imposes a greater order mm-hmm. to his narratives, some of which is done chronologically. So he talks about, for instance, in the birth passage, of, or the story of the birth of Jesus, this happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus. 
And then when he gets to Jesus's public ministry, he says, this happened during the reign of Tiberius. So he gives us rough chronologies. Um, right. He does also interesting stylistically. So there are a couple of um, short but but important transition verses in in Luke. So in chapter nine, Luke says, and Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And then Jesus is traveling all around in Palestine, and, and one thinks, well, Luke doesn't have a very good sense of geography, or right, else Jesus right. doesn't have a very good map, <laughs> because he doesn't go to Jerusalem. But then in chapter 19, Luke comes back and says, and then the time had come for him to uh, go up to Jerusalem. Hmm. And as one, as one looks at the way that Luke uses geography, for instance, uh, it seems clear that he's he set apart that middle section from mm-hmm. chapters nine to 19. There's kind of this interim time in his narrative where Jesus is teaching the disciples, where Jesus is um, kind of on as if Jesus is almost as acting. There's this long period of preparation for when he knows that he's going to have to face his death. Right. So there's a lot of the, there are, there's more clarity in Luke, just as there is in Matthew, but I think there's also a little more complexity in Luke at the same time, that that he's not as black and white as the Gospel of Matthew is. Right. And, and, he's, a, and, he's, a, and he's a more elegant writer. Um, and it I'm sounds like a, he's he's not just presenting historical facts in a chronological way, but he's He's using uh, literary devices almost, if we talk about um, the example you gave of uh, giving Jesus some uh, motivation or some foreshadowing to say that he's setting his, what was the term, he's turning his face to Jerusalem? That's right. And and, and Luke is the only one also that, that maybe even gives a hint of Jesus developing as a character. Right, right. Because um, he, he's got a he's got a verse at the end of, of chapter two, after he's told the story about Jesus as a twelve year old boy, he's got a, a verse that says that Jesus grew in well in physical nature and in wisdom and in favor with God and humanity. Um, now that may just be a summary of of Jesus's life up to that point that mm-hmm. he grew up, but I think there may be more going on to it than that. That Jesus does develop. Right. And and that's actually that's not only rare for the gospels, that's sort of rare in terms of ancient literature because even in Plutarch, you don't you don't have a sense that these characters have development. Mm-hmm. They just they are embodiment of characters. And I think you I mean you don't even have that you don't have that in Homer either, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's not just Odysseus changes. Um so I think that could be that's an interesting aspect of Luke's gospel. Right. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's it's very anticipatory of of I mean, t- to show a character developing would just become a standard for both narratives and biographies. I think certainly it's how we would expect a, a narrative to read today. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then there's John. Um, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all on his own, I think, of the four um, in a lot of yeah. ways. Um, and you have a really interesting comparison where you compare uh, the the opening of John, which is is very famous, and you compare it with some lyrical poetry of William Blake, and you point out how 
in some ways, these both passages can be read as poetry, and it's it's very simple. You could just read the simple words, and you know, it's words that uh, children would know. But the words, although they're easy to understand, the meaning is very complex, and it takes us into areas where we realize things aren't what they seem at first, and and that the the deeper meaning it might take us even into a world of things that are unknowable. Um, how would you characterize John's approach to uh, developing a, a story of Jesus? Well, it's one that's, that's somewhat repetitive, a little bit circular, but coming back to the Blake example, it, it's one that really depends on the on the repetition of words. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus. Well, John's gospel opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he packs these key nouns into that opening, about life, and light, and darkness, and um, being born of blood, and of uh, being born of flesh, and and... And then as the gospel moves forward, those those words sort of pop up again. Not uh-huh. seem to, they just they do. And and at each time there's there's a sense that this is a deeper understanding of that word and there's more layers to it and more complexity to it. Right. Um I'll give you one example that I think is is fascinating that and this actually isn't one of the words that John uses a lot, but Toward the end of the gospel, or um, at the time where Jesus is talking to disciples, the evening before he's going to be arrested, he says, "In my Father's house there are many mansions. Um, I'm going to prepare a place for you." And and people read that and they think, "Well, it, he's just clearly talking about heaven." Mm-hmm. But but picking up on this notion of my father's house recalls the, the narrative in chapter two, where Jesus, um, what's often called, cleanses the temple, but throws the money changers out. Right. And 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 he says, "You've made my father's house into a a place where this money changing is going on." And and then John has this narrative comment that says, well, then Jesus says, tear down this, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And there's a discussion about, well, what, what could he possibly mean? And then John has a narrative comment saying he was referring, of course, to his own body, hmm. which then links Jesus's body with the Father's house. And then, therefore, in chapter 14, where he says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions, it recalls the story of the temple, but also links it not to heaven, but that in some ways the disciples will be part of who he is. Right. It's just his body will be their dwelling place. And that links up, and this is where I think John's complexity comes in, because that links up to these other metaphors that Jesus uses right after that. He says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches, this organic connection between Jesus and the disciples. And then again in chapter 17, where he says, I and the Father are one. Um, May you be one just as I and the Father are one. And this complex language of I and him and you and me. Uh, And I think that's where 
that's where John can kind of make the reader spin in circles because mm-hmm. he keeps coming back and repeating. And I think that's why I use the, the, the Blake example that the Blake does the same thing that whether it's in the poem that I use in the book, which is the lamb or, or tiger or the tiger where he opens right. and closes with the same stanza. And yet by the time you get to the end of this, the poem, there's a different valence to the tiger and who framed this fearful symmetry. Right. And we see in in uh, John's version of Jesus, Jesus himself, words matter quite a bit, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that New Testament scholars have talked about with regard to the Gospel of John is that it's very difficult to tell Jesus, to separate Jesus's words from the authors, that the, the way that the author writes the Gospel of John is very similar to the way that Jesus talks in the Gospel of John, that Jesus himself kind of talks in, in circles at times. Um, right. In, in, the, in, a, in a mystical way, almost. Right. Well, it does seem like uh, approaching it almost the way we would approach a, a long work of poetry or something where the words are are dense with meaning and they refer to, back to one another and you're your understanding of the author's intentions and meaning can be deepened by really paying attention to the the careful selection of words. It, it seems like John is is uh, requires all of our literary anal- analytical uh, equipment in order to understand what he's getting at. I think so. Uh, not in quite the same way as the synoptics, which which re- require more of a literary sensibility. A literary sensibility to the to the construction of the narrative, mm-hmm. um, and and in John the construction of the narrative per se, although I, I guess I would have uh, colleagues that would disagree with this, but I don't think the construction of the narrative is what's literarily important about John. I think it's what you were talking about. It's these, it's the valences of the words and the excuse me, and the multiple meanings of those and the different layers to them as one reads through it. And then as one would go back and reread it. Right. Right. Okay. So now that we've we've had these four different uh versions of of what it means to to give a portrayal of Jesus in each of the four gospels, I wonder if you could comment on uh what does it do for the reader to have four different I mean, one could certainly imagine only having one gospel or one long unified gospel with you know written by a single author and instead we have four uh what has that done uh for people's understanding of Jesus over time or how does it how does it impact the reader who is uh reading the four gospels today I think it depends on what the reader is expecting uh I think one of the one of the interesting things about the canon formation the formation of the new testament is mm-hmm. that in the in the early church they decided to keep four. Um, there was, in fact, a summary of all four called the diatessaron from the Greek word for four, or, and it, it did just blend them all together, but that was rejected. Hmm. I think that, of course, as Christianity was influenced by Greek philosophy and became an orthodox religion where they were so focused on theology and the right meaning that the desire was to make sure that those gospels did not contradict one another. 
Right. And therefore, I think the unfortunate aspect of, of Christianity focusing on orthodoxy was that the distinctive aspects of each of the of the Gospels went away. Mm-hmm. That they were just all blended together. So, so I think that for the most part, they haven't really been read as as four different portraits of Jesus. But I do think that that's that's extremely valuable. That especially coming back to our discussion of the ancient form of of a biography, that if each gospel has a very strong drive to present Jesus one particular way. We should recognize that that clearly is overlooking other ways that we could see Jesus presented. And that for the reader, what it does for the reader to have four is to think of Jesus in a much more multifaceted manner. Mm. And that and that it allows, uh, and I think it also breaks the hold of dogma, that, that right. Jesus becomes much more interesting as character mm-hmm. when when each of the four Gospels is allowed to stand on its own uh, without having to fit into the other categories. So we don't have to make John's Jesus uh, abide by Matthew's Jesus's rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, that in some ways, <laughs> there's a, there's an interesting. I don't know if it's an irony or if it's it's just a, a serendipitous uh, act of history that the, the early church perfor- per, um, put into place diversity, and then got rid of that diversity as it went forward in time with theology, and now it's in our day with a with a renewed interest in the literature literary aspects of the gospel, that diversity has been able to come back. Right. Yeah, to, to the, that's it for the richness of understanding of, of readers, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity. Yeah, and it, it almost seems to invite readers in in a different way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm imagining if we had a standard biography uh, that read like a, a Wikipedia entry or something that was, you know, all facts and, and, you know, it would be maybe something to memorize or something that people could, would absorb. But to have these different facets and to have the, the contradictions or the mysteries that are coming across from having different portrayals of Jesus that are all being handed to us as, you know, the four different versions, um, and the overlap and the times where it doesn't overlap, it almost seems like readers are asked to try to understand some things for themselves or maybe to ask questions or to uh, receive interpretations from, you know, the, their church leaders. Or it seems like there's it's just a more energizing uh, effect that it would have on readers. Yeah, I would agree. I think energizing is a good word. Um, yeah. In a comparison with the Wikipedia article, it encourages the reader to encounter Jesus as character rather than to gather information about him. Right. Uh, and yeah, I think to to again go along with what you were saying, it, it it's a much more active approach. Actually, that kind of t- comes back to Burke's notion as well that that good literature engages the reader and has a connection to real life. Um, because, you know, if you, once you condense the, the Gospels down to dogma, they really do become so much flatter, right. in my mind. 
Right. And you had made the point, um, you had pointed out that in the 19th century, there were a lot of of academics who were taking kind of a historical look and were trying to trace it, uh, I guess, through philology or through what was known from probably geography and other disciplines and to try to tie everything down to fact. And that it was basically one of the problems with that is it wasn't how people were actually reading the Gospels. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the academic approach to the to the New Testament in the 19th century was certainly groundbreaking. I mean, everything that we as New Testament scholars do today goes back to what these German scholars did in the 19th and actually back in the 18th century, because they were the ones that that were able to break the study of the New Testament away from the dogmatic constraints of Christianity. So I don't want I don't want to roast um, right. <laughs> all all of these these uh, German scholars from the 19th century because they did they did great work. Did but yeah, you're work, right. right. They were they, they were interested in history and they were interested in in what they would say in, in German the Wissenschaftliche approach, a, a scientific. Mm-hmm. Approach almost as as a, as a lab scientist would look at the text, and and they often were, um, you know, they they just weren't that interested in in the artistic aspects mm-hmm. of the New Testament. So so I don't know that the literary approach, which which I'm uh, which I first encountered, I guess, in grad school, but which was really part of the academic approach in North America starting in the 1970s and then really picked up in the 1980s. That whole literary emphasis of the 70s and 80s, I don't know that you would ever been able to do that without having gone through the process of of the Wissenschaftlicher historical approach. Um, but I think that that approach ran its course and literary criticism picked up from there um, fellowship to the good of everybody. Right. Okay, so let's let's move on from the Gospels, and while we're talking about the literary approach, um, the next thing I wanted to turn to were the letters of Paul, which uh, is, is pretty clear to see uh, what we can gain from a literary reading. Uh, I mean, I'm just in terms of some of the more beautiful passages and some of the more quotable uh, uh, things that you would find in the New Testament— and of course, with with letters, um, you know, we we tap into a great epistolary tradition. And and one of the things that I had never really thought of before reading your book was that Paul is essentially creating his own first person character, uh, like any letter writer does. But I, I guess I hadn't really considered Paul in that way. So what is uh, what what kind of person or or voice is he creating in these books and what's his what's his agenda if that's the right word well i mean it's a little because he is uh, something of a self-creation it's, it's hard to put a finger on one particular agenda or one particular thing um, mm-hmm. i do an exercise with students where i ask them to think about okay if you're writing a letter to your grandmother how do you present yourself or if you're right. writing a letter to uh, it's getting harder and harder to do that because students don't write letters anymore. Right. <laughs> um, but but I think that that in reading Paul's letters, that you certainly see that Paul himself 
because it's a direct connection between letter writer and audience, is more attuned to thinking about, well, what rhetorical devices um, can I use to to get my message across? I, I do think that there's a center to Paul. I mean, uh, Paul, I, I don't want to make, I don't want to make Paul seem like um, right, like blown he, by the wind and yeah. says whatever people want to hear because that's that would be a, a gross mischaracterization. Mm-hmm. Um, he's committed to the notion that his meeting up with Jesus on perhaps the road to Damascus, as it's talked about in Luke, but I mean in, in Acts, but certainly his, his encounter with Jesus changed him uh, and gave him a notion that salvation and relationship to God was completely different, although not discontinuous with what he had previously thought as a, as a trained um, reader of Scripture, a, mm-hmm. a Pharisee. And so I think that the, in each of his letters to these churches, he's trying to take that message and and help his audience see how it would apply to them. Sometimes he's really, really angry because he thinks that his audience has distorted the message. So in his letters to the Galatians, uh, the seething aspect (laughs) of his feelings is there throughout the entire letter. And then on the other hand, when he writes to the Philippians, um, he is just overwhelmingly grateful to them uh, because they've taken care of him. Um, they've shown concern for him. They've, they showed a willingness to continue to work with him and in, in achieving the same goals. Um, and so I think that, that paying attention to the way that he presents himself mm-hmm. gives us insight also into his relationship with this audience. And then also how how his self-presentation is used in order to present the the message of the good news of, of Jesus Christ, as he calls it. Mm-hmm. And he was the closest in time to Jesus's life, right? He was the earliest. That's right. Yeah. And... So, so Paul's, Paul's letters are written somewhere between, say, 51 and 62, approximately, mm-hmm. uh, within within a decade. And then the earliest gospel, Mark, was written probably right around the year 70, and then Matthew and Luke 10, 15 years later than that. So he's much closer in time to Jesus' own lifetime than the gospel writers were. Right, right. And are there any other literary qualities that that you uh, notice or think of when you think of the letters of Paul? Um, I, I think of his ability to change style, to, to meet his audience's need or to, to meet his own need to present himself in certain ways. So, right. um, the, for instance, the letter to the Romans, it, it, he's writing to an audience that he's never met because he hasn't been to Rome at the time that he writes that. And, and he uses a, a sermonic style called a diatribe. I mean, diatribes in the uh, in the ancient Greek rhetoric or in the Greco-Roman rhetoric doesn't mean what it means today in sort of an angry speech, but rather a, a long 
composition characterized with rhetorical questions, mm-hmm. with putting on persona. And if you read Romans, it, it's it, in some ways it's impersonal because Paul doesn't know these people, but he's he's figured out, all right, here's the best uh, speech form to characterize and to summarize uh, or to expound the 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 message of Jesus to these people. Um, so I think that's a good example of, right. of the literary the literary tools that Paul has at his disposal. And he's good with a turn of phrase, too. Right. I mean, he's got some great lines. Uh, he, he knew how to he knew how to craft. Right. It's it's really something that he, with his gifts and his his literary qualities and his abilities, was the person who was also spreading this message. Yeah, I mean, he must have been a remarkable guy it was, uh, with boundless energy to both travel around the Mediterranean, right. talk to people orally, <laughs> and then keep up with all of these different <laughs> congregations throughout the Mediterranean world. It's, uh, right. It's almost, and sometimes you get the feeling he's almost, you know, like, uh, uh, I don't know if you saw the, the video of the mother who was giving triplets a bath and they were crawling around and she would have to grab one and put them back in, in place and <laughs> then you know, grab the other. Yeah. It's, it almost yep, seems that's like right. he's, that's him with his congregations. It seems like sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> one thing, I mean, this is, this is probably a little bit of a sideline from, from your particular interest for this podcast. But one of the really interesting things about Paul is the way that in the last two decades, uh, philosophers slash literary critics have really become interested in Paul. Toward mm-hmm. the end of his life, uh, Derrida uh, was writing on Paul, and then there have been all sorts of the French philosopher group, uh, kind of in the wake of post-structuralism, but also people like Zizek, um, Alain Badiou, who have who have latched onto Paul. So there's been a resurgence in interest mm-hmm. in him, of course, by people. Who have no had no dog in the hunt, so to speak. Right, right. Oh, with regard to Christianity, I'm not sure how the French people would like that particular metaphor, right. dog in the hunt. But... <laughs> well, <laughs> well, what are they? Uh, what are they seeing in Paul that that gives them? You know, I, I mean, I, I associate authors um, or critics like that with people who are looking for really rich texts that gives them a lot to bring their own uh, creative spirit to. What are they seeing in Paul that, that triggers that? Um... Well, well, the one that comes to mind that's, uh, that I think was one of the earliest in Badiou was that he saw in, in Paul the birth of universalism. Mm. That that he saw in Paul that this, this vision that all of humanity stood in the same relationship to uh, for Paul it would be to God, but for Badiou it's it's more that you have glimpses in Paul of breaking free from sociolog- so socially determined boundaries of class, of gender. And of course, he's he's probably overly optimistic, but it's a it's a complex argument, um, mm-hmm. largely based on Romans and Galatians. So that's the I think one of the things. Um, mm-hmm. Another book on Paul that's fairly recent by a guy named Lord Blanton is he's, the title of the book is Materialism for the Masses. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And so he kind of takes this Marxist approach that's that's similar to that of you, but that that Paul um, Paul had kind of a utopian vision that right. that was similar to Marx's, and um, again, kind of doing away with class distinctions and and the type of things that keep humans in their in particular boundaries in particular circles. Right, and I know there are probably. Some people out there who just object to to using uh, texts like Paul in this way, but I think I'm, I'm I'm guessing that you're like me, which is anything like that just seems so fascinating that it would give you a new perspective on Paul to be reading yeah. something through a completely different lens like that. Um, it sounds like really interesting work is being done. I think it is very interesting. I don't know that it, I, I don't. I'd like to see it in some way uh, more accessible. Because right. of course it's something rarefied, and I want to—I'm not critiquing that either. But it'd be interesting to, to if that could somehow seep down, because I think some of the literary approaches to the Gospels has made its way down um, to interested readers, and perhaps the, this rarefied discussion of Paul hasn't yet. Right. Well, that takes me right into the next topic, and I knew this would happen. We're we're coming up close to the end of our discussion here, and sure. we could probably spend a whole hour, and I probably should spend a whole hour <laughs> at some point just on the the Book of Revelation. But I don't want to skip it all together. It's so it's such an uh, odd and fascinating part of the New Testament, and and the fact that it's included at all seems like it it needs to be discussed and uh you described it in your book and and say that it's it's probably best understood as popular literature what did you mean by that well it's part of a genre of of literature that actually goes back to Judaism that precedes the time of Christianity mm-hmm. where um i sometimes call it as the science fiction of its day right it's it's got a broad appeal in a way to to audiences, and the uh, the emotional appeal to it mm-hmm. is that apocalyptic literature, and and we have lots of examples of this going back to First Enoch and um, a book called Fourth Ezra and Second Baruch, and on and on and on. But the popular appeal is that it appeals to um, people who find themselves in a situation where they think that evil is dominating the world in which they live, that they are being oppressed, and therefore apocalyptic literature, which presents the ultimate destruction of that evil, um, gives them hope. And, mm-hmm. and and therefore, the what I think I meant by popular is the way that it it, it reaches out to, to a mass feeling. It, it, right. It's not at all targeted to elites. Um, it really does address itself to ordinary people living lives that are ordinary and also unpleasant. Right. This At least would, from the point of view of the author, yeah. We would call this a popcorn movie if we were talking about different films. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, and that's why I compare it, and I compare it at the big, in, in, in the book to... Uh, well, I think it was basically the same apocalyptic setup in Lord of the Rings and right. Star Wars and in Harry Potter, where you've got a very clear division between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And the popularity of those films is that it looks like evil is going to easily win. And yet, miraculously, uh, a hero comes along and defeats it. Right. 
And just speaking of its literary qualities, it also has just some some fantastic imagery that I think is is probably uh, etched in the brains of uh, Sunday school <laughs> students everywhere. Yep, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it's got dragons, uh, locusts, beasts, a beast from the sea, a beast on the land, this uh, figure that's uh, in, in, in misogynistically called the Whore of Babylon, who's drunk on the blood of saints, and sitting on seven hills. Yeah, there are a lot of memorable images. Right. Not to mention, of course, Jesus, the, the images of Jesus, either as a, a lamb with his throat cut. Mm. One of the ways that I'll sometimes describe it in class is it's an anachronism, but there's a cinematic quality right. to, to Revelation. Right. And it kind of, I mean, the inclusion in this kind of, takes me to the final thing I wanted to discuss with you, which is just the canon itself and the way that the 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 books as a whole, the individual books as a whole, or the the way the individual books work as a whole. And you you talk about a difference, you sort of posit two readerly experiences, and one of them would be to read the books, you know, straight from beginning to end, one after the other, and the other would be to to more uh, consider the work as a whole. What What's the difference for you in the way that these two? Is one uh, preferable to the other, or what are the two different experiences give us? Well, I think the second is preferable to the first. It, it raises a couple of different questions, and um, I'll try to make it relatively brief. But the, the order of the canon does show what, importance the early church placed on the various books. The mm-hmm. Gospels were first because they were the they were the ones that the early Christians really thought were the most important, and very close second were Paul's letters. To start with the story of Jesus, and then also Paul's interpretation of the good news that Jesus had brought. Exactly. And, and, and therefore, Revelation's place at the end shows that it was a very contentious uh, inclusion into the canon that even today in uh, in the Orthodox Church it, it doesn't have nearly as large of a role in the liturgy. It's still mm-hmm. part of the canon, but uh, it was it was highly contentious as to whether or not Revelation would have made it. Right. Um, but so I do think there's some there's some interesting value to reading it in that order to start with. Excuse me, to start with the story of Jesus, and then to think about Paul's interpretation, and then to add on these various other ones, ending with the end of the world in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like the sense of, of, of more thinking of the holistic aspect of it, so that one uh, can think of James, the small little book, in light of the Gospel of Matthew. They both have these very strong impulses toward toward an ethic hmm. and toward the ethics of of caring for people right. and and therefore um that's a I, I think that's a more interesting well i don't know if interesting it's right it, it seems a more valuable one because it allows you to move back and forth between the various books right um almost as if I mean, I think it's not dissimilar, and I think I may have mentioned this in the book, and I can't quite remember. It's not dissimilar from thinking about the canon of Shakespeare mm. or or the canon of, say, Emily Dickinson's poems, where right. 
where clearly each one has its own individuality, but there's something that links them together. The difference, of course, is that in the New Testament, you have such a wide variety of authorships. Mm-hmm unlike what you would have with uh, Shakespeare. You know, I'm I'm sort of fascinated by the story of how different works were selected for the canon and what was left out, and it kind of made me think about the some of the Gnostic Gospels and, and the mm-hmm. things that, that we've found along the way and things that were rejected at some point or uh, for whatever reason didn't make it into the canon, and, and it it struck me after reading your book that our fascination with those stories or whether it's something like the Da Vinci Code where everyone <laughs> seems like everyone in the world spent a year or two imagining what it would be like if Jesus had been married and or when the, the book of Judas came out that they found on the right. scroll. And it, it, it struck me that after reading your book, it made me think that people were looking at those kind of works almost in the same way um, for some of the reasons why, or they were getting out of it, some of the things that you were saying people can get out of just the books within the New Testament themselves, that they can have this, bring this creative spirit to the stories or to be understanding things and embracing the ambiguity or the uncertainty or the mysteries that would come out of having to rethink some of these narratives that maybe people had accepted for a long time. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to say it. And I, uh, I actually appreciate that that correspondence um, between the two, between thinking of, well, we already have diversity within the New Testament itself, um, and that's what people are looking for in these outside sources. I do think that, that, that one of the fascinations that people have with the, with the non-canonical stories about Jesus mm-hmm. is due to the fact that they have a, a somewhat, not even somewhat, I think they have often a warped view of how the canonical process took place. One of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, some people tend to um, characterize, even if it's an implicit characterization, they characterize the canon process, the process of canon formation, as if there were some heavy-handed bishops Mm -hmm. getting together and say, here's what's in, here's what's not, and our decision is final. Right. it, it's it's very clear from the evidence that it was a much more organic process than mm. that. I think when one when one reads, for instance, some of the non canonical gospels alongside the ones that are canon, um, one of the things that I would argue is that they're just not as good. Right. <laughs> they're not as well written. They're not as interesting. Um, and. And they're fascinating. I love those stories. I teach those. But some of them are actually just kind of like, are really fan fiction. So, for instance, there's a story, there's a a short narrative called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And it Mm -hmm. tells the stories about what Jesus was like when he was a little boy. And it's funny. I mean, Jesus has a teacher that tries to teach him, and Jesus uh, gets mad and uh, strikes the teacher dead. Right. <laughs> he runs into a, he runs into a, a little boy runs into him and and Jesus said what did what were you doing and the boy says well I was I was heading to so and so and and he and Jesus says well you won't get there and it's him dead um, <laughs> but uh, but they're not you know most of them are not well constructed or on the other hand some of the Gnostic texts I think the the Gnostics are, are endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. But they're very esoteric. Right. Um, the, so the gospel of truth, 
is a is a often beautifully written sermon, but it's so highly esoteric um, and at times just opaque that you could see why it didn't develop a readership. I think that the canon of the New Testament came into being because readers found these texts valuable. They mm. found them useful to copy. And and so therefore, I don't think the canon process is so much of kicking things out that might have made it, but rather it's it's sort of the cream of the crop rising up. Now, that's not true of every book in the New Testament. Some of them snuck in because they had names attached to them. Right. Um, like Second Peter is 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 unpleasant and uh, <laughs> and angry and uh, just not that uh, not that great a letter. But it got in because it was attributed to Peter. So. Um, Right. So that's what I, I think sometimes people's fascination, and this gets played out in the Da Vinci Code where it was all a secret uh, cover up by the Catholic Church, or, or sometimes even in bad movies like that movie um, Stigmata. Mm. I think it's a really important point to make that the canon process was not, it, it was not like a proverbial smoke filled room. Right. Well, it really. That, it really does tap into, I mean, it raises the stakes on um, what it would mean to be rethinking the narrative of Jesus, to think that, you know, this is this is what they didn't want you to hear. Yes, that's right. And I I did an episode on, or actually it turned into a three-part episode on conspiracy literature and, and what it, it taps into in all of us that it, it actually, they've done some research on this and it it tends to appeal to people who feel powerless that the more people yes. feel powerless, the more inclined they are to believe in conspiracies. But at the same time, they found that it makes people feel more powerful to think that, you know, they're the ones who are in on the secret or they know what, what truly happened or something. And the Da Vinci code just seemed to be, you know, Dan Brown figuring out the perfect way to tap into everyone's need. Right. And, uh, uh, certainly he, uh, has reaped the the rewards of uh, of <laughs> yes, figuring out the. <laughs> and, and part of the frustrating thing from the New Testament scholars' point of view is that uh, it, I mean we study all those texts, we value them, right. uh, we find that there are great insights into what the early Christian movement was like. It's not as if these texts are are kept away secret. I mean, you just can't do that anymore in today's world. Right. And so it's right. a little frustrating uh, from this point of view, from this side of things, to uh, to uh, when it, when the when it was all coming out, people say, "Is that does that text really say that?" And I said, "Well, yeah, kind of." Right. <laughs> but uh, it's not that big of a deal, really. Trust me. <laughs> anyway, but I, I saw that you had, I, I looked at the list of your, your episodes, so I'll have to go and listen to that one on Conspiracy Lit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I think uh, all of this is fascinating, and uh, like I said, I, I just can't recommend this this very short introduction uh, series, which um, 
I mean, I, I just love the Oxford University Press series of the very short introductions. Every single one of them that I've read has been excellent. And yours is certainly uh, at the top of my list of ones that were just really well done. And, and I have to say that as a fellow writer, there were times where I was just marveling at how efficient you were able to, to make a point in the, the brief amount of space that was allotted to you. Well, I greatly appreciate that. Thank, I really, I mean, that that's nice, and, and and thank you for saying that. And and one of the, it, it was fun to do because as a scholar, one is used to doing scholarly activity, and they're having to do footnotes, and and it was actually a pleasure to be able to think, how can I write this as a, as a writer, <laughs> and right. and, uh, and really focus on my own writing as I was focusing on the on the craftsmanship of the people who wrote the New Testament. So I, I really appreciate your comments, and I appreciate the chance to get to talk to you about this. Well, thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you'll uh, consider coming back the next time we have uh, something we need to dig into and we could use your perspective on. Uh, Professor Kyle Kiefer, thank you very much for joining me on the History of Literature podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, that's it for this week's History of Literature episode. Wasn't that great? Professor Kiefer is such a smart and thoughtful person. I hope he comes back. You can find more episodes about religion by visiting our archives. We have an episode on the Old Testament up there, and a single episode devoted solely to the Book of Job. We also have a lot of works from other religions like the Upanishads, for example. Or you might find the recent episode on Graham Greene to be worth your while. I think that's episode 39. A strange brew of Catholicism there. Plenty of non-religious works as well. All excellent stuff and all for free. I've been asked to talk a little more about my own books. Those are available at Amazon, too. Two short novels. One of them, The Race, is a perfect antidote for what looks like yet another insufferable season of politics here in America. The Race tells the story of a politician recovering from a sex scandal. He decides to win one more re-election. But first, he has to make amends with all the people he's wronged, including the public. It's based on some real-life experiences I had helping a politician write his memoirs. Well, go check it out. Jack Wilson's The Race. If you email me with a question or comment that I can use here on the show, or if you write a review of the podcast on iTunes and let me know what you wrote, I can send you a free copy of The Race or of my other book, The Promotion. I still have a few review copies to give away. Contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, WilsonAuthor at gmail.com, or by leaving a comment at jackwilson.com. Once again, that's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. Okay, that's it for today. My thanks again to Professor Kiefer and to all of you listeners. Next time, we're going to take a huge swerve, or maybe not such a big swerve. We'll be exploring the erotic Christianity, or whatever else you would call it. I don't know. We're, we're going to be looking at the lyrics of Prince. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss that one. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.